Well, at first that was fine and dandy you know, because we set a standard for the market. You know, we brought in an established brand. People could trust us. Dosing would work. But that market in any market matures so fast and they take the lessons learned from previous markets that they grow and evolve at lightning speed. Compared to how we grew and evolved as an industry in Colorado, Oklahoma caught up quick and surpassed us on the medical side. Like it's a really booming medical market. But what came with that is um, dosage and tolerance was rising. Uh, what we saw is, you know, our 100 milligram packs actually are behind, you know, what's on the market. You know, for us, you know, what we just recently launched out there, you know, we have a 1,000 milligram pack, which harkens back to our original, you know, kind of 10 gram chews. We're putting 10, 100 milligram pieces of taffy in a package, and that has quickly become our most in-demand product. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer, and I am so happy to be crossing the threshold that is 100 episodes. What a journey the last couple of years has been. I certainly didn't know what to expect when I originally launched this podcast, and it has grown and evolved and taken on a life of its own, from graphics to editing to the tech that powers the podcast to most recently learning and adopting automation, in addition to the wisdom shared from my guests, operating and producing a podcast has taught me so much by way of consistency, learning new skills, and the art of iteration. I'm forever grateful for the opportunities this podcast has presented me with. It's been incredible getting to connect with all of my amazing guests, hearing their stories, and capturing a snapshot in time of the realities we are facing as professionals navigating the cannabis industry. The amount of insight I've personally soaked up is insurmountable and has absolutely impacted me for the better. This podcast has humbled me, level set me, given me a reality check, and simultaneously invigorated me to keep going. We all know the truth of the industry is challenging, but the journey is so much more than the destination. It is in these in-betweens, in the struggles, and of course, the lessons learned, and how we overcome those hardships and come out on the other side, smarter, better, and wiser. I've been so blessed with an amazing community. Thank you, my listener. You are who helps power this show. Without your support, curiosity, and engagement, this wouldn't be the show that it is today. I appreciate every single time you press play and have to reiterate from the bottom of my heart how special this show is to me and to be able to do something that I love and am passionate about and share it with you to be a piece of inspiration along your journey is a gift beyond words. Thank you so much for engaging with me, reaching out on social media, sending me messages, and connecting with me at events. Every time I get to meet and interact with one of you outside of the podcast lights up my heart, and I look forward to the next 100 episodes and what will learn and impact together. I, of course, also have to give major gratitude to all of my guests. Every single one of them steps out into the uncomfortability every day operating their business, but to come onto a podcast and give us a sneak peek behind the curtain is immensely valuable and immeasurable. The wealth of knowledge that is captured on this podcast flabbergasts me sometimes. It is ridiculous how much information is out there, but to be able to channel it and ask key people leading our industry about how they did it is the prize we're all after. How do they do it? How do we do it? How do I do it? And lastly, I have to give props to the media and PR teams who help champion their clients and ultimately connect me with their resources. 
There are so many wonderful publicists who have now become friends and champions of me who put me in front of opportunities to do what I love to do. So thank you to the agencies and teams of people who are orchestrating and organizing schedules and allowing me to tell your clients' stories. It is really a whole production putting together a podcast. But 100 episodes ago, I didn't know what was possible. And here we are together today reflecting back on the journey. And it feels really fucking good. So in honor of today's episode, I knew I had to have a guest reflective of the moment. Not that my other guests aren't equally accomplished in their own regard, but for this episode, I really wanted to commemorate the milestone by highlighting a brand who has been around for a whole decade, which is a long time in our industry. They've navigated medical to recreation and now are tackling marijuana and hemp markets in multiple states. Chiba Chews is a brand that I've personally grown up consuming and have very fond memories of enjoying while spending time in Colorado. I've watched their brand evolve over the years, and it's been with the help and influence and leadership of Eric Leslie, their chief marketing officer. I had the pleasure of meeting Eric at a Grasslands event at MJ BizCon last year and got to connect with him one-on-one and learned more about Chiba Chews and how he got involved in the brand. So of course, I had to extend an invitation for him to be on the podcast, and luckily, he accepted. In an industry where there are lots of imitators, Chiba Chews is the real deal and has paved the way for so many edibles brands that have come after them. There have certainly been lessons learned, and as there should be when you operate for over a decade, but through the highs and lows, there have been North Stars guiding the brand and business towards the success they're experiencing today. From their marketing campaigns like We've Got You to their partnerships and the way they approach collaborations, their products also incorporate a lot of minor cannabinoids, which I think is really awesome. And they have a lot to say about their decision and approach of entering in new markets in multiple states. Today's episode is special to me for so many reasons, but I think it's best to let you hear from Eric himself. So please join me by lighting one up and let's welcome Eric to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. My name is Eric Leslie. I'm the chief marketing officer, co-owner of Chiba Chews. Uh, we're a legacy brand founded in 2009 back in Colorado. My best friend, actually, from high school, James Howler, founded Chiba Chews. Uh, he had a home grow in Colorado, small medical home grow, and uh, he had some leftover trim And uh, we had an industry that had no real standards of consistency or brand identity at the time. Uh, He found taffy was really consistent and it blended really well uh, with cannabis oil. You know, put it out into a couple small medical stores and grew like wildfire. At the time, he had no digital skills at all. So he reached out to me and said, hey, I need a business card. And I said, uh, okay, business card for what? Send me a couple of details. Let me send you, you know, what I'm doing. Uh, and I remember he had, he had sent me a piece of this chocolate taffy and I uh, gave it a try. And 30 minutes later, I was rocked. And uh, I was also hooked. I said, I get it totally. And from that point forward, I was working, collaborating with James and, and our third partner, Dave Maggio, on um, building the brand Chiba Chews there in Colorado and, and also across the country. That's amazing. I mentioned before we were recording that I'm just such a fan of the Chiba Chews brand. I grew up in Texas, but spent a lot of time going to Colorado and watching that market open up. And so it's a really cool and fun opportunity for me to have you on the podcast to get to talk about the brand that is Chiba Chews and and also learn a little bit more about the journey that the brand has gone through over the years. I mean, 2009, I can't imagine what cannabis was like. And so I'd love to kind of start they're really understanding what was Colorado like in 2009? What was it like getting a license to operate? And mm-hmm. kind of what was that go-to-market opportunity? I mean, you mentioned launching in a couple of medical dispensaries. So certainly it was, you know, medical first before recreation. And I know we'll get into kind of what that evolution impacted and did for the business, but really getting into, okay, Colorado is open for medical we created this brand. We think that we have, you know, an award-winning kind of flavor profile, effect profile. Let's bring this product to market. What does that actually look like when you guys were setting out to launch 
your brand, mm-hmm. Chiba Chews. Yeah. So uh, you make it sound like we knew what we were doing at the time, but quite honestly, we didn't. You know, you had uh, a few guys with, you know, varying backgrounds from construction to food service to, you know, I have, you know, a degree in audio engineering and, you know, entertainment business, right? So we genuinely, genuinely, genuinely caught lightning in a bottle with this piece of taffy. And I remember the early days, James would go around and say, okay, what are we going to call this? And we had a variety of names that he kind of threw around. And Chiba Chews was just one of those names. We didn't sit there with a marketing department and a bunch of consultants and do A-B testing to figure out, you know, is this what we do and, and how to do it? We were learning on the fly. And, and I think at the time, there really, like, there weren't standards. You know, you had cheesecakes and brownies and cookies and, you know, all those stories of, you know, baking at home and crumbling up, you know, cannabis and, and putting it into your brownie when you bake it. There were no standards for edibles. And, and nobody was looking at edibles at the time. We're still really just looking at flour and enjoying it from that standpoint. So extracting you know, you the cannabis oil and infusing it into an edible and doing that in a consistent manner was the first point to create separation from what was happening in the industry at the time. And it's funny to look back now, you know, over a decade later, and to say that's all it took to create a standard. And, you know, from that, you know, learning is, is where our brand identity came from, right? You know, we, our pillars are potent, consistent, and discreet. And uh, at the time, the potency, your consistency, and, and your discretion of edibles, you, know, you had big cookies or a big brownie. How many bites do I take? I have no idea. Um, you had this 70 milligram piece of taffy that you knew after a couple of test trials, you know, how much you can break off and enjoy uh, to get the desired effects from it. Uh, I think consumers immediately were drawn to that I and mean, understanding that they had an expectation now and that other edibles on the market at the time weren't providing that same level of standard expectation. And that created, you know, that separation of that identity for us. I think it was 2010 when we won the first High Times Cannabis Cup. Uh, it was our wow. Decadose. 175 milligrams in this small little piece of taffy. And at the time, shops were getting such strong feedback on the potency of that product that a lot of them actually made customers, uh, patients, uh, sign waivers of liability because they would look at this little piece of taffy, 10 gram piece, right? The size of a Tootsie Roll and say, oh, there's no way that thing is going to knock me out. And every time it would knock people out. Uh, in fact, I still get emails and phone calls and you know texts and social media DMs uh, from people saying, I have my first edible story and it was with a Chiba Chew. So there's this nostalgia component, uh, especially those early days of like, yeah, this thing can't possibly do what everybody says it does. And holy crap, it did. That's so remarkable. I mean, I very much remember the early days of, I mean, certainly when it was recreation from my perspective, because I wasn't a medical patient in Colorado, but going to Colorado once recreation had happened and mm. for sure seeing Chiba Chews, for sure consuming Chiba Chews, but definitely mm. more on the experience, even which I really want to get into a little bit because you're talking about potency, right? And and the podcast, I've had a couple of guests on from different markets where mm. I think Colorado being now an established market, certainly a legacy market going into states like Oklahoma, which I know you guys are also operating in. There is a little bit of the wild, wild west when it comes under the medical kind of category of dosing. And I think, yes, now the industry has gotten towards standardization, certainly Mm -hmm. led by brands like y'all who are coming from this edible, you know, aspect where people want to know for more or less, you know, how much should I take? And also how much am I going to feel once I take that much? But understanding this kind of open nebulous of milligrams and potency. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I was reading certainly to get prepped for the interview and and I saw that line of y'all launched kind of with that 70 milligram taffy. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this little size, like you're saying of a Tootsie Uh Roll, how do you nibble off just a little bit to kind of, you know, okay, well, is it going to make me feel anything? I didn't really eat that much. What's going to happen to me versus now I think we were just talking with some people yesterday and I had this gentleman on the podcast from Oklahoma. They were talking about like 3000 milligram chocolate bars, 8,000 milligram chocolate bars are in their market presently. And so I'd just love to hear from you a little bit of the, 
I guess, journey of kind of maybe how much is too much or how did you start to look at like 70 milligrams initially? And maybe if you could go into also when standardization started happening, was that really because of recreation? Because I was reading a little bit too, and just from my understanding and history of how things have kind of transitioned. Yes, you're introducing, you know, better, I wouldn't say better maybe, but more specific label standards and requirements, mm-hmm. consistency mm-hmm. from that consumer perspective. And so how do you kind of go from the wild, wild west of, let's say a 70 milligram, you know, piece of taffy to yeah. Yeah. a more dosed experience, mm-hmm. especially as you have new consumers entering into the marketplace? That's a really great question. Because when we started, you know, in the Colorado market medical days, it was very gray. You know, there weren't definitions. We literally were setting a standard. And you think at the opportunity we have, um, you know, in this cannabis industry, um, and, you know, even still today, but especially back then, we were in our creating an industry. There are not standards to reference back to, to say, this is how you should do it, especially given some of our federal limitations, going state by state to kind of build expectations. We were really fortunate to be born in Colorado, you know, one of those original states to launch an identity, both in medical and, and recreational, obviously California being, you know, the, the oldest of the old, um, but Colorado really was able to set and mature itself really fast. And so, yes, we started with our 70 milligrams and then our decadose which was 175 milligrams. And on the medical side, one, one of the biggest things that we saw pushback, you know, at those times, you know, from advocates against our industry was overdose. Consumers, you know, taking too much and having a bad time, which almost all of the time, if you take too much, you're really just going to fall asleep. But, you know, you take too much, you can have a little bit of a panic, right? It's not a great feeling to take too many milligrams of THC in an edible. So understanding your your personal dosage is really important. And I think when recreational came around in 2014 for Colorado, there was a standard of 10 milligrams per piece, 100 milligrams per pack. I think that was a great standard to set to enter people into the world of cannabis edibles because you really don't know until you try them. You know, I'm from the Midwest back in Ohio and, you know, Bible Belt, cannabis, you know, no good, and DARE program, stuff like that. You know, so there's a lot of people that have never tried an edible before. And if you start at 25 milligrams, your first time ever trying an edible, you probably will never try an edible again because it's way too much. But over time, you know, as you consume, if you become a regular consumer, your tolerance is going to build. And so what 10 milligrams does for you today, you know, in a month from now with regular consumption, you might need more than 10 milligrams to reach your entire, your intended effects. So that 10 milligram standard, I think across the board, standardization, walking normal consumers into our industry was 100% the right way to go. You know, you talked about entering a place like Oklahoma, which is a, you know, 10 years ago, if you told me I was going to be in Oklahoma, I'd tell you you're crazy because you're going to jail for life if you're caught with cannabis in Oklahoma. But we actually met a partner out there who was uh, purchasing our hemp products and, you know, went out and met him. He's doing a really good job, you know, from a distribution standpoint. And he says, you know, I'm really interested in getting into, you know, our medical market. And we started looking closely at it. And they had some pretty friendly regulations as far as shops and you know regulations. So we decided, you know, this is a good partner and it seems like a decent medical market. So let's go ahead. Relationship matters so much to us when you scale into new markets. You know, we're a really small team. You know, at the ownership level, there's three of us. We don't have any sort of investors. We don't have lines of credit. You know, we are a zero debt business. So when we go into a new market with a new partner, we're not just looking to scale as fast as we can to have news releases out about how many markets we're in. We're looking at really solid partnerships with people that really want to win with us. So Oklahoma was that feeling. You know, we work with the Stash House guys. Brian Hendershot leads them over there. And, you know, he wanted us to win. I mean, that mattered to me and mattered to us. And so, you know, we went, said, okay, let's go ahead and do this. What we found really quickly was we had to adjust ourselves because we had become almost normalized to this 10 milligram dosage, right? This recreational expectation. So when we launched in Oklahoma, we launched with our suite of 100 milligram products at 10 milligram dosage. Well, at first that was fine and dandy because we set a standard for the market. You know, we brought in an established brand. People could trust us. Dosing would work. But that market in any market 
mature so fast and they take the lessons learned from previous markets that they grow and evolve at lightning speed. Compared to how we grew and evolved as an industry in Colorado, Oklahoma caught up quick and surpassed us on the medical side. Like it's a really booming medical market. But what came with that is um, dosage and tolerance was rising. Uh, what we saw is, you know, our 100 milligram packs actually are behind, you know, what's on the market. You know, for us, you know, what we just recently launched out there, you know, we have a 1,000 milligram pack, which harkens back to our original, you know, kind of 10 gram chews. We're putting 10, 100 milligram pieces of taffy in a package, and that has quickly become our most in-demand product. Now, consumers, patients in the medical market, they can choose their dosing range, but they want that flexibility. And when you're working in a medical market, they don't want to be restricted to taking one piece that's 10 milligrams. They want some flexibility in how much of a dosage, because maybe today they want to take 25, but tomorrow they want to get rocked and take 50, or their tolerance is way up there and they can handle 100 milligrams at a time. So what you see the difference in there, when you look at a medical versus recreational contrast, medical markets really have, you know, with patients, you know, cards, you know, they're, they're more established consumers um, and they have a higher tolerance, a higher demand. But in order to maintain legitimately on those markets, you have to have a range of options for them and some flexibility so that they can dose the way that they need to versus on a recreational market when you have more green consumers, individuals that maybe don't consume all the time or just have you know smaller tolerance levels. I really need the guide rails around them to say, hey, start at 10 milligrams or maybe even half of that 10 milligram. Feel that tolerance level and decide if that's a good dosage level for you. That's so fascinating to hear, one, as you're merging into these new markets, kind of how you're approaching partnerships, which I want to touch on a little bit deeper, just knowing that you are in California, Nevada, Mm -hmm. and Massachusetts, in addition to Colorado and Oklahoma, but also looking at it from the dosing and potency perspective of just who is the consumer or patient in that you know, scenario and what is that market really asking for? And also what is the legal opportunity or I guess Mm. parameters that you can play within, right? So it is an interesting kind of slice and dice depending on what the law says, Mm. which I think sometimes people just don't really unfortunately pay a lot of attention to, at least from my perspective, Mm. especially as these new markets are going online. I mean, New Mexico just went online a couple of days ago by the time we're recording this. And it's just so much excitement, right? People want to be in these markets, but people neglect to realize, which I talk at nauseum out on the podcast, but state to state and even municipality to municipality, there can be varying laws. And so just understanding that as you are navigating into these markets is so critical. So it's cool, Mm -hmm. again, that Oklahoma was an opportunity for y'all to kind of go back to your roots and really land with some success with people wanting that higher strength dose. So kind of going into what I was alluding to when I originally started mentioning, you know, these other states that you're in, what has Mm -hmm. it been like taking your brand into these other states. So Nevada is a little bit more mature, especially being recreation, right? But Massachusetts, from my perspective, I don't know a ton about, but I've had a couple of guests on from Massachusetts. So it seems to be a pretty good, you know, picking up market, but going into California where that is such also a legacy market, there's such a saturation of brands. So I want to get into a little bit of how you've put your brand into these other markets and kind of what was the sentiment and adoption? And did you have to do anything different, maybe both on the potency and dosing side of your products, but maybe even Mm -hmm. on the labeling side too? I've talked to some people where certain states, again, depending on what your packaging or labeling might say, you can have this graphic, but in this state, you can't have that graphic. So you've got to go redo your labeling for every state you're going into. So I'm just curious, what has been y'all's experience navigating Mm -hmm these different markets and then especially California where it's just so saturated in my opinion from a brand perspective not that you haven't built a great brand to stand out but sometimes yeah. i think there's a little bit oh. of head to head like oh you're from Colorado well we want california brands and how do you win in that that scenario right yeah yeah i think the biggest challenge is you know what you stated going state to state and how do you build a standardized brand identity with different regulations literally in every state. I mean, we're going through it right now. We're getting ready to launch in Missouri. And uh, I've been going back and forth with the state regulators because in Missouri, again, another medical market, you have to have the word marijuana on your package bigger than your logo. But that's subjective. What does that mean? Bigger? Does that mean that like it just has to be wider, wider and taller? Like 
there's a lot of ways that you have to interpret these state regulations. And, and what I find is a lot of the regulators don't fully understand it. So it becomes a very subjective conversation. And, you know, we've had such a long history of dealing with regulations. Colorado is a tough, tough market. They were changing regulations every six months. And, and early on, we couldn't keep up with that. We were literally throwing away thousands and thousands of labels and pieces of packaging because it's obsolete because the word changed from marijuana to cannabis, right? Crazy stuff, but that left your packaging out of compliance. And so we had to learn to fail multiple times and get right back up. Uh, I think that's the biggest lesson is your ability to adapt and to respond uh, because you're never going to get it right every time. And I'll tell you what, I can't tell you how many People I talk to that are you know single state operators that you know are ready to scale, right? Ready to grow into other markets. Like I got this down, and I can do it. And then they get punched in the face by regulators, you know, in their new market with nope, you can't do your packaging like that, or your product has to be stamped differently, or you have to handle things slightly different from a marketing and sales perspective. Because while states are pulling regulations from every other market, they all want to have their own identity. And you have to be adaptable enough in how you prepare your product and your packaging and, and how it displays to meet those regulations. Another really good example you mentioned in New Mexico. Well, all of your packaging material has to be recyclable or reusable. I don't, I don't know the exact definition there, mm-hmm. uh, but we're getting ready to enter New Mexico. And uh, that was a big curveball. While most of our packaging is recyclable, not every single piece is. Uh, so now I have to go out and source a piece of lidding material that is, one, child-resistant, meets the standards of you know child-resistant in all of my markets, but then also now also meets the standard of, of being recyclable for New Mexico. And those are just some of the things where it's like, oh, I can't do do this in six different markets. Let me just stay where I'm at. So I hear a lot, you know, about this perception of MSOs, right? Multi-state operators. And you can throw us into that category, but we're not a big conglomerate, you know, that are just looking to peg a new license in a new market. Like I said, you know, we look at it as finding genuine partnerships with people that, you know, want to get in that foxhole with you and want to battle and, you know, fight hard for market position and, you know, win, you know, with the challenges of each market. You know, Massachusetts, a great example. Everybody out there loves fruit taffy. I mean, if you think about saltwater taffy, East Coast, those two things connect Mm -hmm. completely. Well, what we found when we launched is, you know, every market we go into, our chocolate and our caramel, you know, that's that's who we are. Uh, that's been our anchor of our identity, and it's always the product that sells, you know, at the highest level. Well, Massachusetts, not the case. Our fruit taffy uh, has outpaced our chocolates and our caramels, and so we had to adjust our strategy in order to meet the demand out there and provide different fruit flavors versus, you know, trying to scale and grow, you know, our chocolate and our caramel lines. You know, another challenge in Massachusetts is, guess what? They decided to do it five milligrams is a dose out there. You can still do a hundred milligram package, but now you're doing a 20 pack to meet that hundred milligrams instead of a 10 pack. Well, that changes consumer behavior because consumers maybe fly to Colorado, California, all these other markets and like, well, 10 milligrams, that's what I look for. Now I got to eat two pieces instead of one piece. And so that changes things and you have to adapt how you position yourself in every single market while still trying to find this anchor of identity for yourself across all of those markets. This is who we are. But in this market, you're going to see that you're going to have a slightly different experience based off of what those regulations are for you. Yeah. Regulations Um, are so fascinating to keep up with, right? (laughs) No, they're not. No, they're not. No, don't you ever say that. They're the worst thing to keep up with. It keeps you up at night, especially if you're in multiple markets. It's scary because it's like, oh my gosh, I just ordered all of this packaging or we have a process down and this is going to work. And they say, nope, guess what? We're going to change the way you have to do it. Now you have to change everything about who you are, but still make that translation to the consumer that this is who you are. One thing we really battled for years and we still do is, you know, more so early on and even really in California, like you said, is knockoff brands, right? We had everything from Sensi Chews to Shiva Chews that looked exactly like our product. Well, because we're not federally regulated, it's really hard to enforce trademarks. Number one, it's really hard to get a trademark. We have a couple of them and we've been fortunate enough in in how we we were able to go get them, but go ahead and enforce them because these people are going to say, good luck, come find me, right? Um, Yeah. Tell your legal team to come find me. You never will. 
And so when you have to change and modify your identities, like taking Oreos, horrible example, don't like it, but Dave, my partner, loves them. Oreos, if it looked different in the you know convenience store in Kansas versus the convenience store in Colorado, you're going to question, is that a real Oreo? Mm. Um, and so that's something that we really battle with is making sure that we can keep the standard in, in our identity in every market, but still hit the mark uh, for what the regulation is for it. That's an um, interesting observation, just really quick to interject about. Yeah. If I'm hearing you right, it's not only are you trying to keep your brand quality from a consumer perspective intact when you're going into these new markets, because there is regulation that requires you to perhaps have different packaging and different ways of presenting your product, whether the milligrams are changing or the label looks slightly different. But then there's also mm. just genuine people who are ripping you off who you yeah. also are having to fight the brand identity from a consumer perspective of that's not us, yeah. <laughs> but in these states, that's this the, is us. <laughs> everybody's a chew now, which is fascinating because I'm 100% certain it's because Chiba Chews has built such a brand identity around right. that word chew that if you're not a gummy, you're not a chocolate, you're kind of in those middle categories. You're now, even gummies are calling themselves chews. And I'm seeing, I'm like, man, like that's me, but it's not me. It's anybody that wants to brand themselves as a chew. And so when, you know, consumers, again, maybe at a novice level, haven't shopped a whole lot. They say, oh yeah, Chiba chews. And then they see something on there that says chews. And they're like, that's gotta be it. I guess that's it. So fighting for that market position, like you said, California, such a saturated market, long history, you know, of, of what they call the traditional market, black market, traditional market is what they call it now to be respectful yes. to those, you know, stores that don't have a license, but still operate, don't have the tax burden, you know, that, that these regulated stores have, you know, that shelf space is really hard to come by. You know, when we entered California, gosh, it was, you know, multiple years ago, still medical at the time, you know, we had lots and lots of success. When recreational came along, you know, the money that goes into building these brands, like there's some really, I don't want to call it dirty, but there's definitely some very aggressive tactics, you know, buying shelf space. Again, I'm a no debt business. I'm a small company. I only spend what I make and reinvest back into the business. There's companies, you know, in, specifically in, in that California market that have a lot of great financial backing that don't necessarily need the profit right now. And so they'll starve the market by buying shelf space that I can't afford to you know, spend $5,000 a month just to be on your shelves mm. in order to starve everyone else off the market. And then they'll drop their prices so low that you can't compete and sustainably make a profit off of it. Neither can they. But because they have this additional funding, they can afford to do that. And, and their goal is to literally starve you off the shelves and be the last man standing. Um, so there's tactics that are happening you know, in that California market specific like that. And, and we're oversaturated. We're overregulated. It's really hard to run a profitable business in a California regulated market. It's so complicated to get product from just the manufacturer to the dispensary. You know, you take it from the manufacturer and then you have to manifest it to a distributor. That distributor has to test the product, quarantine it, and test it. If it doesn't come back within the potency range, it has to be relabeled. Once that passes that, then you can then distribute to dispensary. Well, you have to collect an excise tax mm -hmm. from that dispensary as a distributor and pay that to the state, while the manufacturer has to take the tax from the farm and also pay that out. So it's a really, really complicated system um, that uh, isn't really pro-business and, and gives you the opportunity to grow. Uh, we maintain in that market. We're not doing gangbusters but we're there because it's such an important market culturally, you know, for our industry, California, everybody knows California cannabis, right? You know, so to maintain in there is really important priority for us, but there's not a lot of companies that are, you know, cleaning up and doing great, just giving the hurdles and challenges, you know, regulation wise and competitor wise of, you know, some of the tactics that are happening out there. That is so wild to understand. I feel like every time I talk to somebody who's doing cannabis business in California, it's unfortunately, you know, not always the most positive sentiment, which is mm. fine. I think at least my approach is I want to, I want the truth. I want the reality of it. Yeah. And I think again, a lot yeah. of people look at being in cannabis as this cash cow opportunity and, yeah. and it can be, but I think you really have to be smart at 
navigating the market and being realistic with who the players are, how you're playing, what is the regulation, what is the legislation, all those things kind of flowing together to give you the tolerance or the comfortability to keep leaning into it despite the chaos that you're having to navigate through. So I appreciate you sharing that perspective because it's so important for people to hear it from these brands, like your brand. It's important for people to hear from your mouth what it is like to be navigating this. And so I think it's just really helpful to, to learn that. Hello, just want to take a quick moment to thank my sponsor and full disclosure, my company, Restart CBD. Restart CBD is a brand that I built with my sister. So we are family owned and women owned. We do operate a brick and mortar in Austin. So if you ever find yourself in Central Texas, we'd love for you to come say hi. But we also ship nationwide and we carry a wide range of CBD products. We really care about this plant. We really care about educating our customers. This show would not be possible without their support. So please go check us out at restartcbd.com and use code TOBEBLUNT for $5 off your next purchase. Thanks, and let's go back to the show. I want to transition a little bit into, one, you have released a lot of minor cannabinoids. I know y'all are mm. also playing in the hemp space. Yeah. So the question and kind of, you know, thought process is how did you start to lean into those minor cannabinoids? I personally have got a chance recently to try your trifecta, which is a CBD, CBG, THC blend. You have a yeah. THCV product. You have a CBN product. You even have strain specific live rosin. I come Ooh. from the hemp space where mm. I see at least my observation, especially playing with Colorado a lot. I just have family and friends there. So that's why I'm most familiar with that market. When we mm. launched our CBD brand in 2018, I got a lot of laughs from my Colorado <laughs> friends. Like nobody wants CBD. Mm. <laughs> Why? What are you? What are mm. you getting into the CBD market? And now they're kind yeah. of eating crow because you're a Colorado brand. You're incorporating these minor cannabinoids, which my observation is really came to market because hemp became federally legalized, and we had access to research yeah. to the accessibility of these cannabinoids. So again, it wasn't yeah. really something that I saw coming from medical or even recreation until hemp became legalized. And, and now you just see the floodgate of all these miners yeah. hitting the market and, and they're pretty fantastic. Yeah. I know I personally love taking THCV daily in the morning. Yeah. So I'm just curious, what was that evolution for you guys to introduce those miners and what has that experience been like bringing those to market and, and really educating consumers mm-hmm. with these types of other mm-hmm. effects of the cannabis plant that are not just quote unquote getting high, right? Yeah. Uh, it's a great lesson too. I think we had so much success early on that we got to a point where we stopped innovating as a brand because if it's not broken, don't fix it. Well, when you work in an industry that's ever evolving at a very rapid pace, what you do today uh, won't necessarily stand up tomorrow. I mean, that's how fast the industry moves. And so while we got so far ahead of everyone back in 2009 and 10, by the time we hit 2016, everybody had caught up to us and a lot of people had passed us. And we kept doing the same thing. We were a piece of chocolate taffy at that point, standardized to 100 milligrams. Uh, Everyone had potency and consistency, all right? Uh, Everybody took our brand pillars and made that the staple of what our industry identifies as. So while we were able to set that standard, the industry caught up to us, caught up to us pretty quick. And so we started looking at, well, we plateaued. What do we do now? I mean, it was that farm bill of 2018 that gave us access to these minor cannabinoids. Um, you couldn't source CBN, CBG, you know, THCV, especially in so many other minor cannabinoids you, you kind of discussed, you couldn't source those within a regulated market because plants weren't growing with high yields. And so your plant material that you would need to extract it from is high in THC is extremely low in CBG. Well, that THC is incredibly valuable. So you're not going to go ahead and waste the THC in order to extract the CBG. That hemp act and the proliferation of farmers growing these hemp crops and CBD was extremely popular, still maintains very popular. And I love the effects of CBD, but there was this expectation that it was going to be even bigger than maybe it was for a lot of different reasons. But there was excess plant matter available. And we were able to explore, and and like you said, look at these minor cannabinoids from an extraction standpoint through hemp. And so our first product that we launched was our Sleepy Chew. 
Uh, we did that in, I think it was 2019, uh, right before you know COVID hit in 2020. We had to do something different. We had been looking at CBN all the way back in 2015, but because we could not source it at a sustainable price, I think your kilo prices back then for a kilo of CBN isolate was like $45,000. Oh um, you know, do the math people and you can figure out how you know expensive that becomes infusing it into milligrams, but it's not sustainable and put it at a price point that consumers could tolerate. So we played with CBN for a while and kind of, you know, it sat back there. We had the product ready. We just couldn't source it. Well, 2019, you know, we're getting itchy with product innovation and, and trying to figure out, you know, what's next for us. You know, we were able to access, you know, a kilo of CBN for slightly less than that. And while it was way too expensive in our first batch, we were not going to, you know, make a profit off of it. We knew we had to go to market with something that, that was different than just 100 milligrams of THC. Everybody has it. Everybody knows it's there. And now you're just racing from a commodity standpoint, right? It's just price. So bringing out that Sleepy Chew reinvigorated our brand. It quickly became our number one seller. And I think mostly because you could talk about that effect. It's very clear in the name what this product was going to do for you. So it was twofold for us. One, introducing that minor cannabinoid, mixing it with THC. I believe in the entourage effect. So I believe if you just took CBN as an isolate, you wouldn't receive the full benefits without that entourage amplification from THC. So pairing, you know, that five milligrams of THC with 2.5 milligrams of CBN in our products, and then maximizing that by making it a 20 pack, you're still getting hundred milligrams THC because that's the max I can offer you on a recreational market, but I'm giving it to you in 20 doses. You don't necessarily need 10 milligrams of THC in order to fall asleep at night. So if you just require that five milligrams with 2.5 CBN, you have 20 doses available to you. You can maximize that, you know, that dollar spent. And that, like I said, took off and really gave us a lane to operate in the wellness field, um, but still stay within the regulated market. You know, and that that's where we brought in, you know, Trifecta, uh, which was a totally different product for us to put out in the market. Sleepy was easy for us because, you know, we could really lean into that. When we launched it in Colorado, we put a milligram of melatonin in there. Uh, and really, it wasn't for the effects of melatonin. It was so I could legally state that this is a sleepy product. You know, because they're all the regulation state, you know, you can't make health benefit claims, those sort of things. So, you know, it's hard to market the effects of these minor cannabinoids from a brand perspective, putting it on your packaging or in your marketing materials, because you're really restricted from making those claims. So using nutraceuticals as an ingredient, as a way to build your messaging, helped made that connection with consumers and, and really grew that CPN product. Couldn't say the same for Trifecta. You know, I'm a big believer in CBG, CBD, and THC combo as an anti-anxiety, anti-depression solution. I saw the effects myself. We saw the effects over and over in, in lots of the testing we did, but I couldn't make that claim. I get big trouble for making that claim. And there, there really is no nutraceutical that I could put in my product in order to make that claim. So we branded it as a Be Happy Taffy. And what we leaned into with that Trifecta Wellness product was testimonial from frontline associates like butt tenders. We sampled that product heavier than any product we've ever sampled. And it was because I knew if people just tried this and understood the effects, they would be believers in it. But I couldn't sell it to them that way. They had to try it themselves. In order to do that, I needed advocacy from the front lines. And that advocacy still Still today, in every new market we introduce, Trifecta is the crux for how we are launching our Trifecta product because that advocacy, that bud tender can tell you the effects personally that it had on them, and that builds trust with the consumer to, to give it a try. So minor cannabinoids, really important, have even THCV with the energy components and even, you know, it, it's an appetite suppressant as well. Those are things you have to be really careful about how you market it because of regulations. You got to be really careful. While those effects are there, we know it. We have the testimony. And, and sure, we don't have tons of clinical data to share it with us. We have real life consumer data uh, that is validating these experiences for us, which is what drives us to put these products into market. We just can't make those health claims. Until we can have better clinical data around this in order to confidently make those, I think that's the one thing that holds us back, you know, from a wellness capacity and really, you know, diving even deeper into 
cannabis is more than THC. Cannabis is way more than just getting you high. Cannabis is, is a healing agent. And if you look at these cannabinoids and how they connect together, we can isolate them now and then we can recombine them. Look at the effects from anti-inflammation to anxiety to sleep deprivation. There's so many healing properties that are available for us in the cannabis plant. We need to dive deeper into those minor cannabinoids in order to bring that to light. Yeah, minor cannabinoids are so powerful. I mean, again, just coming from my side of the house where we're predominantly dealing with hemp and and CBD and these minors just by nature of our regulations here in Texas, it is Mm. so incredible to see people being able to open their perspective to cannabis. That is, Mm. again, just not getting high. It's, it's, hey, you don't have to get high. You can have better sleep. You can have better focus, like you're saying, but I really love the strategies that you shared of, you know, it is the reality. You cannot say, and so I was curious, I'm glad you addressed it, you know, sleepy. Mm. That is such a trigger mm. word when it comes yep. to marketing and branding and packaging, mm. especially. And so how do you kind of creatively navigate around that? And then especially with trifecta too, leaning on that yeah. advocacy of those bud tenders to be those frontline people who are really kind of helping curate that experience for the consumer. Oh, I want to feel this way, or, oh, I'm only interested in trying, you know, edible products and really being mm. able to guide them towards, Hey, here's a great brand and here's a great product because I've tried it. So I think that that is some really good takeaway for everybody to keep in the back of their pocket. I want to transition a little bit into branding. One, I know that you guys have put together a really extensive brand Bible and I want to learn a little bit more what was the impetus for that? You know, why did you think we need a brand Bible and and how has that been put Mm. into action and then kind of evolving into some of your marketing strategies Mm. and tactics? I know your social media is very active. I'm sure you guys have been dinged with censorship and even perhaps being pulled off like most people in the industry have navigated. But lately Mm. I've seen and observed kind of over the last year or so you've really leaned into video content. Mm -hmm. I was really enjoying the recent videos of Let's Get Toasty. You're doing collaborations Mm. with Dope Kitchen. Um, I love that we got you, you know, kind of tagline and the way that the videos are slowing down, like your brain is hitting the edible. So just, you know, kind of go, go with us through why the brand Bible, how does that help you uphold the brand? And as you're evolving into marketing strategies and tactics, you know, what do you resonate with and why are you kind of doing the things that you're doing? What's the inspiration behind it? Yeah, great, great question from a brand perspective. So when we launched in Colorado, we controlled the narrative internally to create all the artwork. I could create all the messaging. When you launch into new markets with new partners that have new sales associates, um, if they don't have guide rails for how to sell your product, they will come up with their own. Um, And that's not always the way you want it to be done. So what we found very quickly, and we launched in California after Colorado, and then we went to Nevada, then we went to Oklahoma, then we went to Massachusetts. And as we go into Missouri, go to New Mexico, look at Montana, New York, we're dealing with partners. We're not operating in that market. We're not physically there training our representatives on what messaging to use, where to use it, and how to use it. So the important part as the brand, as the central you know, nervous system is to create that story and that narrative and to make sure everyone is speaking the same language because we found it many times over market position, you know, completely changes depending on who's selling that product for you. And so the, the Bible, the idea behind, you know, having this kind of overall identity and being able to take that and share it with each one of our partners to make sure everyone's marching to the same beat. And that's so important, I think, for your brand as you not necessarily corner the market you're in, but look at, you know, other markets. We have to go state to state. That's the way things are built. And if you're going to do that, you're dealing with partners because you're not getting a license in every state. You're not operating that physical team. You're not even doing sales training on a regular basis. So they have to have guidelines to follow. And I think that was one of the biggest exercises we put together probably five or six years ago was, okay, we need to put effort into you know these documents so that we can share them with our partners so they know how to sell the product consistent with the identity we've created. So I think that was one of the biggest things we did strategically. I think I've done everything on a tactical side that we're allowed to do because there are, you know, as you know, and we've talked about so many regulations and hurdles 
And I've had to push really hard on all of the boundaries to say, where can I go and what can I do? Early on, I could do nothing. We still pretty much can't do anything, but there are ways around all of it. And so we started doing video content probably, you know, four or five years ago, just really from a, you know, commercial standpoint and doing it a high end. Uh, we still want to connect with consumers and kind of be our identity. So I don't want to do the fluff stuff, but I want to do something very high end and visually appealing and set a standard for who we are as an industry, right? Because I know I, I don't just speak for my brand. I speak for my industry. And if I say we're a bunch of potheads or I say, you know, um, I position the entire industry as a certain way. People are following that. And so the high-end way that we produce you know, our video content is important because it sets a standard that, hey, we're here, we're mature, and we're credible as well, right? Those are important you know, pieces to communicate, not only to consumers, but also to industry regulators, business partners, and the avenues in which we're distributing our content on. So with video, a really good example, we made good investment strategically in, into producing that content, but then where the hell do we put it? You know, I went everywhere from let's go to movie theaters. Well, we can go movie theaters, right? Because rated R movies are, you got to be 21 plus 70% of your market is kind of, you know, the regulation to advertise. We thought, hey, let's go here and do movie theaters. Talk to AMC. Got really far down the path with AMC on doing rated R movie. We're just going to do pre-roll. We got these great 15-second pieces of content that hold up on your screens. The executives from New York shut it down because they're just anti-cannabis. wasn't because we couldn't do it. it we, we were within regulation. Uh, we could do it, but because the New York executives said they weren't comfortable with it, they shut it down. You know, I've got another example. We were going to work with there's a website, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but it's a it's where creatives basically upload and download large files, right? Uh, so it's a really perfect target demo. I can geo-target in Colorado. You can basically take over their splash page and have your brand serve there. And it's a, you know, we have documented 21 plus. These are, you know, business professionals going through this this website to upload and download, you know, their content that's too large to send in an email. Got all the way through the design aspect of it. Approved through it. We got the budget down, ready to go. Ownership linked. Wasted a month and a half of negotiations and prep because ownership, not regulators, ownership of that company said, we're anti-cannabis. We don't want to do this. So the fight we fight is two-sided. It's regulations and standards from state to state regulations, but also just the perception from the business you know, community that, that we're trying to work with. Uh, because one side is said, hey, regulation said you can't do this. I can find a way around that to say, yes, we can do this, but I can't find a way around the business owner that says, I don't believe in cannabis. And so we're not going to serve that content on our platform. And that's been the other restriction. We can find our way around regulations to do it correctly, but now we also have to find our way around the stigma of what our industry represents from you know people that have this connotation that cannabis is bad for you. I mean, that's really the biggest hurdle, I think, overall, knowing that I've gone through every channel you can think of to advertise and promote our brand and find ways to get around the regulation hurdles dealing with the internal politics, you know, from a business partner standpoint, uh, that's the one that's really going to slow you down and lead you to not be able to actually advertise on these channels. That is so freaking crazy to learn that it really is sometimes not the regulation. Cause like you said, even if the regulation says X, there's a creative way to navigate mm -hmm. around it, but really reminding all of us. I mean, I don't think I live in a bubble by any means. Right. But mm -hmm. the stigma sometimes is, I mean, especially being in Texas, yeah. part of the stigma, but realizing mm -hmm. that sometimes those are the roadblocks that this industry is having to fight against. It's not that this is legally wrong or regulatory right. not possible. It's, well, I just don't like it. And I don't want to have that in my business. I don't want to have it represented on my brand. And I guess that is a little bit, you know, as a brand marketer, I can understand that's their decision because they've built yeah. a brand and they don't want yeah. to partner with things yeah. that take away from their brand. So it's like, I can understand that. But then the yeah. other side of it, the just crazy nature of, wow, this yep. could be a really cool partnership. And like, you're really going to just yep. look the other way. And and I, I, I yep. have personal experiences too. I mean, just like really quick, we were trying to navigate a cannabis dinner here in, in town in Austin, CBD, of course, all, you know, legal hemp, legal cannabinoids. Yeah. And my friend is a chef. He's totally down to do it. He has a food trailer. He's an up and coming chef. And he 
moved his food trailer to a new location at this brewery. And he's like, okay, well, I have to ask the brewery owner. It's a brewery owner too, you know? And the guy was like, no, absolutely not. No cannabis. And mm-hmm. and it kind yeah. of shot us, you know, in the heart a little bit of like, why, why yeah. is it like that? But then again, I can understand, especially understanding how right. the alcohol licensing works. I have heard that there are some, yeah. you know, restrictions as far as if they touch anything cannabis, they could then lose their license. And that's obviously right. their business. So it's like, I understand the heartaches that we're going through as an industry, but I'm also still so shocked sometimes when I hear some of these stories because I'm like, what the hell are we doing? But it's just wild and never shocks to amaze me. I think just like a side tangent for our fodder, you know, I was interviewing someone Uh, in Arkansas uh, and I think they're medical only. This would have been a year ago. He told me they're allowed to obviously legally get a license. They're Mm. able to own the building, but they cannot put signage for their dispensary on the building. And I'm like, what the fuck? But you own the building. You got the license, like you're legally operating. And so they got creative. They built a, or they've hired a local artist to do like a really pretty mural on the side. So it's like, look for the mural. That's us. But weird nuances like that of, you know, you just, you don't think that you're going to hit those roadblocks, unfortunately, but 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 what I say is is what it does for you, and, and this harkens back to what we talked about earlier, is your ability to respond, your resiliency, for sure. to innovate, uh, to find new avenues that aren't existent is what allows you to sustain in an industry and to create a legacy that will last forever, right? If you just don't give up I and mean, you keep working at it, you'll find a way. And I think that's a lesson I've learned being in this industry for over a decade is if you just keep picking yourself back up and continuing to push those boundaries and not relent on that, you're going to find, you know, that you can build your legacy and an identity and an opportunity that, you know, we're not going to ever find in in our lifetime in any other industry. No, that's very, very true. And I I always appreciate the reminder, even personally, I think sometimes I can get really cynical, um, just, you know, kind of coming from the, you get punched and you get back up and you get punched. And it's like after the seventh, you know, 10th, hundredth time, you're like, I don't really want to get back up today, but it is part of, I think, the rhythm you have to adjust to if you want to be in the cannabis industry, which is where I try to come from with this podcast is a reality check, a blunt approach of this is the good and the bad. And you can have the good, but you have to be realistic with the negatives that you have to face. So kind of going with that, my final question that I love to, you know, I started asking my guests this because I think it's, you know, an inspiring way to approach things. What Mm. does the future of cannabis look like to you, to Chiba Choose, mm. and mm. kind of, you know, what is what it, if it, an opportunistic or just like a perfect or even what you really think is going to happen to the industry? Yeah. And, and I will not claim to know what's going to happen. And anybody that does, they're not being honest with you. You know, doing this for long as we have, I think early on, we used to always talk about, well, maybe in three or four years, we're going to legalize, you know, federally and we need to be ready for it. And <laughs> Here we are 12, 13 years later, and no, um, you know, so um, I, I don't know what happens. What I am hopeful for is, is what we talked about on, on the minor cannabinoids. I think we have the opportunity to open this industry up to a much wider demographic by really leaning into these minor cannabinoids. THC is well established for what it does and uh, the industry that it can build, but the lanes we open up by further exploring our minor cannabinoids and and the effects that they can have on people, the wider the demographic we can bring into the fold to better accept it as an industry. I have many, many stories specific to my sleepy chews of grandmas and grandpas and moms and dads, an older generation per se, I don't want to put a stigma on it, but that maybe previously, you know, wouldn't be open to you know, cannabis as a solution, have found, you know, that this product is their every night go-to and they can't get enough of it, right? Uh, that changes your cannabis perspective instantly. I have a, one really short story about my mom. She had fractured her back and she was taking pain medication and it wasn't working for her. So I gave her a one-to-one chew. And again, she, she comes from, you know, Bible Belt Midwest, their programs, cannabis, no good. And I gave her a one-to-one, which was five milligrams of THC and five milligrams of CBD. That combination is really good for anti-inflammation. And she started taking that. 
while these pain medications were not helping her. She's in pain. She's on the couch. She can't move. I remember her texting me uh, the next day and saying, you know, these are really helping me. Why isn't this legal? And it's just, you know, you're funny um, when you hear a story like that, you know, coming from a person who obviously is, has always been, you know, no, 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 cannabis is not for me. To find a way that cannabis is for her opens up the conversation um, in such a great capacity. So I think we're going to see wellness, you know, really continue to grow our footprint as far as uh, consumer advocacy and consumers, you know, really uh, looking to it as an alternative. I also see, you know, we, we talked about our strain specific, you know, very lightly. We're looking at rosin, you know, because I think consumers are also looking, you know, on the more mature side of things. Uh, they're looking at more complex cannabinoid um, infusions. And, you know, rosin is, is a beautiful product. It's solventlessly extracted. It is as close to the plant as you can get, you know, from an extraction standpoint, terpenes, flavonoids and, you know, your, your cannabinoids, right? You know, we saw a trend a few years ago of this demand happening. I actually saw it out in California. And I said, you know, I, I really like the taste of these terps coming into pairing with our, you know, flavors. And we began to introduce that here in Colorado. And we've looked at a couple other markets as well. I think it's a uh, more sophisticated palate that's looking for terps, you know, because we spent so many years trying to get the uh, THC or the cannabis flavor out of edibles to now seeing the industry evolve and mature to say, no, 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 I want to be able to taste that terp profile as long as, very importantly, it pairs complementary to whatever the taffy or gummy or, or candy flavor that you're using, because that flavor profile, that connection uh, creates an enhanced experience as well, as well as, you know, it gets you high and, and you really enjoy it. So I think we're seeing the lane kind of grow both on a wellness, you know, general consumer side and also a sophisticated side where consumers that, you know, are, are looking for more from cannabis, you know, maybe consume their THC edibles on a regular basis, are looking for other alternatives like a raw an infused product. So uh, I'm excited to see us grow and mature outside of just, you know, 100 milligrams of THC uh, and to provide more custom tailored solutions because I think cannabinoids connect with each of us differently and very uniquely. It's a very intimate experience we have uh, to give consumers the ability to experiment with a variety of different cannabinoid combinations to find the very right combo that works for them. I think that's where we go as an industry from an edible perspective. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadaturabi.com slash tobeblunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadaturabi. 